Welcome to another riveting episode of Hollowed Waters Podcast. I am your host, Matthew Zapinski, and we are the Cognito Ergo Sum of Fly Fishing Podcasts. I think, therefore, I am, but I have a new take on that now. It's We're going to be the Cognito Ergo Insectum Piscatio Podcast, which in Latin means, I think, therefore, I fly fish. And uh, I'm a Latin lover, and uh, I have to perfect that one because it was, I don't know, I'm sure I'll get some Latin people out there saying I, I messed up some tense or something. But anyways, that's where we are, and we are in, uh, uh, I think we're episode five now of Below the Meniscus, and um, it's a series that um, we've been doing, and people have been loving it. It's about the evolution and the art of fly fishing below the surface with nymphs and wet flies. A seven-part series on Hollywood Waters podcast, and we started out, and uh, today we have a magnificent gentleman that um, is uh, in, we are in his part two, we did a part one uh, in the uh, previous podcast, and uh, we're going to get a little more into reading water and more technical stuff and talking about his books and things of that nature, and um and uh, things like that. But first of all, I just really quickly want to say blessings and prayers out to the people in Gaza and to the areas that in Ukraine and the places that are still getting hit by war in this day and age, which is unbelievable. Thousands of people are dying and it's just, it's so uncalled for. And uh, our prayers and blessings are out to you and the whole world um, and all the madness that's going on. But uh so all we could do is pray and uh, be thankful for what we have and uh, continue to love each other and uh, and go fishing. And that's the most purest way to get in touch with nature, as St. Thomas Aquinas did when his, uh, and, and Dom Juliana and his or nuns did. So anyways, on that note, and to all the people that have lost loved ones over the holidays and uh, people that are, have health problems right now or going through afflictions and things of that nature, we wish you all the speedy recovery you could be if you're not on the water now you could be on the water with us at hollow waters podcast and um and all that so uh player prayers out to everyone uh so anyways we are in part two and we are with george daniel and uh uh we've gotten so many great emails and uh, uh instant messages from people enjoying the series very much and enjoying george's podcast and uh, seeing a whole different side of him. And uh, it's what we try to do is we try to bring out the uh, innermost uh, cognito ergo sum of everybody. And um, and it's and it's going really well. But um, so on that note, uh, welcome back, George, for part two. Thanks for tolerating us and me and uh, not running after the first part and saying I'm never coming back. Well, no, thanks for having me. And thanks for not canceling the series after my first appearance. <laughs> <laughs> You were great, man. I really, really enjoyed talking to. You. And uh, so, yeah, so we're going to talk a lot today about, you know, looking for, for Euro-nymphing water. And, you know, George, George, you know, I think uh, I got blamed for a lot of this Euro-nymphing stuff and because he, he was such a powerful figure of it when it came out. But and now, you know, we know so much that uh, George does so much us else than just Euro-nymphing. And, uh, you know, he's written a great book on streamers and he continues to evolve and with his new book. And um, so, yeah, so this is probably poor hat for George uh, talking about Euro-nymphing, but he's <laughs> stuck with it. So, like, I'm stuck with steelhead dreams for the rest of my life. So I got to talk about steelhead, even though I catch eight-inch brown trout, little 
little creek wild brookies and stuff but um yeah so um george um did you have a good holiday season and uh did you uh, have a chance to get out and do some fishing yeah it was wonderful get had some fishing in mostly musky fishing and uh yeah just uh it was good to take a little break but i get antsy pretty quick so it's it's good to be back to work at penn state and doing uh shows and being on podcasts such as yours so no it's good to be working again Wonderful, wonderful. Um, and uh, we talked about George and his teaching at Penn State in the first part, and uh, it was really insightful and and how he's mentoring all these people. And it's so important for us to mentor um, as we go along. But I think we left off last time talking about Schwiebert and, um, you know, Schwiebert's Nymphs was a really powerful book for me. And I think for a lot of people, and especially for nymphing as a whole, because it really brought uh, the entomology uh, into it and and he he combined some heavy duty entomology and really good research on nymphs which we really didn't have a lot of at that point um you know we had art flick streamside guide and we had a few other people along the way but um you know i'm just going to do a little uh, reading from from uh, nymphs uh, in schwebert and he was talking about his time in Germany, and, and he says it was a still reach of a river above the mill race. Its bottom was a rich with chara and dikelma mosses, streaming and waving lazily in the quiet currents. There was a soft wind from the south, smelling faintly of freshly plowed earth. Dairy cattle were grazing in the meadows above the village, and a timber honey wagon rattled emptily as it passed. The mill was silent. And is the huge water wheel cranking absently as it touched the river. Smoke rose from the chimney of the thatched roof cottages and ducks were nesting under the bridge. The current flowed smooth and tea-colored through its trailing weeds. The ruined castle stood high above the valley floor where the cobblestone road wound toward the gristmills at Froheim. Trout were porpoising softly in the surface film. Their rises dimpled the smooth currents above the mill race with a steady feeding rhythm. I've tried 15 or 20 patterns, I explained to the old river keeper. The fish keep rising, but they don't take my dry flies. The river keeper says, Yavol. The old man nodded. They're like that. So, like stuff like that, which Shrebert um, just transformed the entomology and his tactics to, to this kind of stuff. Uh, George, did, what, what got you into the entomology of the nymphs and, and who are your inspiring people that, that took you to that level? Well, I mean, for me, I'm still, I mean, I'm nowhere near at your level, Matt, but to be honest with you, I really didn't get into the entomology and probably until my early twenties, when I actually started working with a, a mutual friend of ours, Paul Weimer, uh, you know, and yeah. what, what Paul brought to me was the idea that you definitely don't need to be an entomologist, but you do need to understand some basic behaviors. Uh, fish, even though they have the brain the size of a pea, you know, they look at size, shape, color, but also behavior uh, and, and their condition to food, moving and looking in certain manners. And the closer you can get to basically just kind of covering the basic size, shape and color, and more importantly, the behavior of that insect with your presentation your success rate is going to go off the charts and just like Schweeper did i mean it's it's a thick book it's it's an amazing book but it just basically brought to light just a, a lot on how these insects behave and if you could even just capture a, a tenth of that information with your presentation you were going to have so much more success on the water yeah and and that sums it up very much because if you look at you know um Carl Richards and everybody, you know, they 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 took the, the very tough to 
fathom type stuff if you're not familiar with Latin. And they made it into simplicity and in saying, you know, they are pea brain, you know, creatures, but then the days where we're on the water and we get our butts kicked and we're using the right patterns and the right everything. And then we, we go up to like the Delaware or somewhere where these fish have seen everything in the world and we're still getting skunked no matter how great our patterns are. There's just, it, it, it gets into more... The, the layers, you start peeling off the onion layers and you start getting into these, you know, what uh, fine tunings at my tip. It is my length of it is everything. So all the things that we're talking about here sort of transform from from the tiny little pea to a, to a mountain turns into uh, to back down to a molehill, back into a mountain. And then it just gets kind of crazy. Um, so looking for Euro nymphing water. So, you know. George is going to really get into this because not all Euro, not all water is Euro water, and uh, or it could be if you're going to use longer leaders in the Spanish system and stuff like that. But you know, you look in in my, I'm going to give my interpretation of the ideal Euro nymphing water that I like to fish is that tight pocket water, that nicely defined. You know, these slots in this medium size to smaller size river. It's just you could pick apart and pick apart every little bucket, every little seam, every little crease that you know a trout could be in. Um, and then, you know, I look at a perfect Euro water like um, Spring Creek and State College. I mean, your home waters. It just seems to be that perfect size, that perfect definition, that perfect depth. Um, and and then you got these big, you got weedy channels on, you know, real true spring creeks. Um, how do you how do you go to a river and say, I'm gonna Euro nymph this or I'm gonna I don't know. Give me your definition of that perfect Euro nymphing water and and if you died and went to heaven and what kind of Euro nymphing water would you be given if you were a good guy? No, oh, that's a good question. Really good question. To me, the way we'll talk a more about the, the setups, but the setups have evolved a lot since I started competing to where they are today. But my definition of where I would Euro nymph is essentially if I can get it within two rod lengths of a f actively feeding fish without spooking them. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it's slow water, faster water. If I can get within two rod lengths without spooking them and I have actively feeding fish, I'm most likely, and I can present upstream to them, I'm going to Euro nymph. Uh, so a lot of times when people definitely think about Euro nymphing, they're thinking faster, broken choppier water, which is the, the atyp, you know, the, the typical scenario where most people Euro nymph, but with how we have def basically developed ultra thin leaders going really small with flies and tippets, you can now, most of these anglers are fishing super skinny, really slow moving sections of water, uh, just as effective as they would with faster moving uh, sections of water. So it's that's kind of my my definition. I use it now more than anything else when I'm nymphing, when fish are on the bottom. But quite honestly, the moment you start having any sort of higher level of feeding, where fish are feeding higher in a level, you have emergers and so forth, I'm going to immediately switch to like a dry dropper or just go to a single dry. So I, I pretty much just Euro Nymph when it is really my only option. But when there's other options available, I'm definitely working higher in the water column, going to wets um, and or dry flies. Yeah. Um, you know, so what I think if people... When they first get confused, when I when I guide a lot of people and I you know I I swing a lot of soft tackles, I swing a lot of traditional wet flies, I do a lot of indicator nymphing, 
Um, and I do uh, a, a Euro nymphing on, on guide trips. And the first thing people get really frustrated with is that they don't know if they're at the right depth and they don't know if they're getting into the right depth a range or they're getting they're adding they're going too deep or they're not depth. So how would you how would you give people um, the best way to judge? depth and and are you in the right zone are you in that are you in that take zone um and are you getting close to the bottom where you shouldn't be too much on the bottom what is your general thoughts on that so one thing is rarely am i ever on bottom like crawling bottom i mean when uh, we're not trout are not suckers they're not carp they don't have subterminal miles that are feeding usually feeding off the bottom even though sometimes i have seen them but Normally, from what I have guessed and from what I've seen just by doing a lot of snorkeling that I do with my kids in the summertime on rivers uh, for trout and bass, most of the time fish are feeding within like six to eight inches off the bottom. They're not sucking things off the bottom. They're, they're, drift, they're drift feeders. They're looking for. So quite honestly, if, you are, if you're snagging your flies, if you're hanging up every other cat and you're losing and just hemorrhaging nymphs uh, left over hand, hand over fist, you're definitely fishing too heavy. Um, so I, I want to lead it with that. But the other thing too, it, it's just, it's a situational awareness. And quite honestly, it comes with, you just need to know, understand the river and the conditions that you're facing. If, if I'm going to a, a new river and complete in like the, the coldest winter months in December, and there's really basically no signs of activity. If it's like, you know, 11 o'clock or 10 o'clock in the morning, we're still, I, I have no major activity, anything like that. Just instinctively, I'm going to be going right now. I'm going to be working as close to the bottom as I can without hopefully snagging. But if there's a, a midge hatch, like you may see occurring on the Madison, like later in the afternoon, where you just have that very short window of period, I'll start feeding higher in the water column. So usually cold months, I'm going to start really low. Uh, if I'm fishing springtime, like late April, May, like during like our peak bug activity in Pennsylvania, those fish, even when I'm on the water, often like at like eight thirty, nine o'clock, there, there's there's enough insects, there's enough bugs that are moving that I can basically start fishing mid column uh, with my Euro rig, or just you know maybe fifteen twenty inches off the bottom and start catching fish. So that is where, quite honestly, like understanding the the system of the water, but Going back to the entomology, just having just a, kind of a, a little basic understanding about the insect life cycle, when they hatch and when they occur and so forth, can really give you a more pinpoint determination on where you should start your presentation. But it really depends on, I think, bug activity followed by fish activity, and that should be your guiding light to where you start fishing your flies in the water call. Yeah, and uh, so, you know, when you're when you're gonna so you're you're moving up a system you're moving up a creek and you know a lot of of the competition the comp fishing is about speed and adaptation and moving quickly and watching time and all that great stuff so you're 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 a ninja you're 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 a warrior and you are moving at a fast pace to to win the competition that probably has taught you a lot um, about you know how you nymph today but you know do you when you rig your rig up just we're going to talk about that a little bit are you going to look based on how flies swim in the water but based on the the whole water column so are you going to are you going to rib a rig at this time of year for instance let's say we're fishing an average tailwater 
or, or Spring Creek right now, that is going to have midge activity. You could pretty much presume that it's going to have some bluing olives, some betas activity. Um, it's going to have uh, scud and crest bug activity. Um, caddis larvae are pretty immature at this time of year. There's not a lot of it. There's m very micro caddis larvae. Uh, on the bottom, but they're not maturing very much and they're not really that big of a part of the bio drift. Are you going to set up your three fly rig and your to to and space them? And how are you spacing them? Let's talk about your spacing and your logic for spacing. And are you going to space based on the bio drift? So you know that maybe midge ascending midge pupa are going to be your top fly. Middle fly could be, um, you know, a swimming hyalella scud. Your bottom fly could be a big, juicy crest bug with a tungsten head on it or something as an anchor fly. How are you going to get your, how, at this, let's say this time of year, your logic for your three fly rig at this time of year and your logic for three fly rig maybe later into spring and early summer? So the, I still will use multiple flies, sometimes two, sometimes three. But one of the, the things, the advancements that has occurred, in my opinion, within the last couple of years is pretty much thinning down the system. So in many situations, these anglers are fishing level tippet. They might fish a 20-foot leader, but it's all level 4X. There's no mass. There's no sag. Back when I started competing, and even before then, they were still using thicker leaders. They were using fly line. Fly line has a mass. It's got a counterweight. It's going to start pulling down through the guides, and, and whatever is in the water is going to be lifting, acting as a counterweight and, and pulling that out of the water. But since we pretty much have thinned out the leader systems entirely, you don't need as much weight. And one of the things that people were doing earlier on, they were using a lot of sacrificial flies, these really heavy, massive grub flies, like big traditional check nymphs with a lot of weight and it wasn't the fact that fish would eat them even though they do but it was just simply meant to act as a split shot and for like people that don't follow international competition and kind of like in europe and a lot of places i've i've fished before it's almost like sacrilegious to use split shot. pretty much you you put all the weight into the fly itself so when you were using heavier lines and leaders you needed the mass of three flies to achieve the depth usually in a lot of the water yeah. Um, Systems so, are. Yeah, yeah. It makes sense. A lot of good stuff there. Uh, so when you're when you're going to go and fish a creek, are you going to spend more? Are you going to just, are you going to fish sight of the, the fishy looking water? Uh, do you feel like sometimes you pass by water that you don't pay attention to? Because everybody's got their honey holes. Everybody's got their buckets and everybody's got their... Their prime prime taking lies and their secondary take tertiary taking lies and secondary taking lies and stuff that you look at say uh, I might not fish that but when you're when you're going out and and say you're guiding and you want to make the person happy which we try to uh, we, we we're not gods and you know we we get skunked a lot I do I mean everybody does but there's days when you really want to get person in the fish and are you going to pay more attention to to how fishy the water is so one thing about nymphing is that people think you're just robots and you just go about, just get in the water and start pounding every piece of water. And that's, I think you probably could break that misconception down because um, looking at some of the older nymphers, like, you know, the older writers and the nymphers like Brooks in Montana with his pot shotting of holes, and he, he tend to look for fish that were taking stoneflies 
Do you look for actively feeding fish and how do you how do you identify those fish? And um do you um do you do you do you go by water and and give it a second look and say, you know, maybe I should be fishing this? And and what's what's the deterrent from you? Obvious, you know, obviously you're not gonna fish a creek that's three inches deep and it's sand and you could see no fish in there. But do you spend more time like a dry fly guy sitting and observing now that you're you're becoming very seasoned in in the art of what you do? And um, are you looking to go into these lies that most guys don't get into? Give me your thought process when you're going up. But what George Daniel's thought process when he's going up a stream? Yeah, I mean that's a question you could talk about for days. To be honest with you, <laughs> yeah. uh, but again, it's it's seasonality. Uh, and it's also the streams. Um, you just referenced Spring Creek. Spring Creek on some sections has roughly 6,000 fish per mile. There are a, a pile of tiny little fish on this stream. And on some sections of water, and it doesn't matter if it's the coldest winter months or during the peak insect activity of like April and May, pretty much I would say 90% of the water, because there's so many fish, is, is going to be a target. You can You could cover pretty much anything on Spring Creek and you're going to have a chance of actively feeding fish. Um, and then there are freestone streams that I will fish that the old rule of like 80% of the fish are holding 20% of the water. That's going to be also true. Uh, pretty much it's just looking at the conditions. If it's early in the day where fish are not active, you're looking at typically more of the prime lies where you kind of have a nice transition where you have current, but also you've got slower water where fish can rest. Uh, and those are usually the areas, those prime lies or resting lies is where I'm going to be going during like non-peak times. But as soon, as soon as I start seeing bug activity and most of our bugs, not all of them, Typically, as you know, like like the faster ripple, as soon as I know like certain insects are going to be hatching, I'm going to start jumping immediately to those heads of those runs, those faster moving sections of the water where I know you're going to have freshly emerging insects where those fish are going to be moving from the deeper waters and, and it basically go into a, a feeding frenzy. So it is entirely based on the stream system and also time of year and, again, the insect activity, knowing where these insects are happening. If I'm on the, if I'm on in Michigan during hex season, you know, I mean, this is it was fascinating to me fishing some of your waters, just understanding like certain pods of mud are going to warm quicker than others, and and yeah. and as knowing that information is going to basically tell you where I would be hitting the water first versus where I would be hitting it two or three hours later. Uh, so it's it's inside information, and this is why hiring a guide, no matter where I go, and I know you do it, Matt, like. You hire a good guide. You're not yeah. getting. The, I'm not hiring the guide to get the hot spots or the honey spots. I'm hiring the guy to just basically try to understand in eight hours how he views the water, and that information is invaluable. And it's something it would take years and years uh, of your own time trying to put into a program. Yeah, it's a good point. You know, and you, I think you, uh, you fish with Jack Ford quite a bit, and you wrote a beautiful introduction for Jack's book. And uh, tell us, you know, tell us a little bit about your time up in Michigan and what what you liked about our waters, and give us your whole. And you fish up at Gates's with uh, those guys up there, I know. And uh, tell us your your whole take on Michigan and what you've learned here. I mean, I don't want to say too many good things about it because I don't want too many more people living up there. I mean, the. <laughs> Quite honestly, if central Pennsylvania is my home, but if I had an opportunity to move elsewhere, 
that northern part of Michigan where you live and up further up around Traverse and Grayling, that would be uh, that would be my next destination where I would live. I mean, I've even looked at properties up there just buying a little camp. But it's just, I mean, it is just immense, just the amount of waters that you guys have in such a short period of time and waters like the Manistee and, and the Osable and how quick and how different they are. Uh, and they're pretty much like just on the opposite sides yeah. of the drainage, but how, how vastly different and how different they are as fisheries is one of the most fascinating things, you know, running up the, the Pier Marquette fishing that, but you just, you guys have so much, not just trout, but you've got that steelhead salmon you've got bass you know you've got pike and musky but i mean yeah it, it is a, crazy and the cost of living up there compared to other parts of the country like i don't understand how you know if i was a fishing guide i would i would never want to go to colorado or Mont. the places the cost of living now in these locations and trying to make a living at those locations uh being a guide is I don't know how they do it. So my Michigan has a, a special place in my heart and I try to spend at least two or three weeks. And sometimes I've spent four or five weeks up there every year, but it's, it's my home away from home. Well, next time you come up, uh, I'd love to take you out. So we have to definitely hook up my friend because uh, you're welcome up here anytime. And if you want to move up here, we'd love to have you. And uh, you know, we need uh, articulate people up here because sometimes I, I think we're, Oh, I'm just kidding, Michiganders, but sometimes I think we're waiting for Darwin in some of these places. But, uh, you know, it is what it is. We all got our challenges. So, but anyways, uh, on that note, um, let's go in. Let's get into um, let's get into tackle a little bit because we didn't talk much about that. Uh, we talked a little bit about that. Um, let's get into let's get into rods, for instance, and how you're viewing rods today. And I know um I fish with uh, I, I fish with Tory Collins, who's going to be on this next, and he's going to give us a perspective on on this from a fly shop person, from a from a a guy that took Euronymphing and fell in love with it and became crazed in it. And uh, I know you worship you, George, and and how much you've taught him along the way. And uh, I remember I was fishing with him and um, and Nandy and Na Mandy and Nanda and um, I had a ten foot uh, Orvis Helios, ten foot five weight. And um, he says, "Oh, George, George fishes that rod." And uh, and and you know, um, I liked I like the Helios rods. I've always loved them. And and uh, Tom introduced me to them and stuff. And um, so, how is your take on rods today? Uh, and how did you see them progress? over the years and um what do you like to fish today um you know give us your whole take on rods today because there's so much confusion about which kind of rod you should be using today so no one's making a bad rod these days your rods i mean i'm a, an ambassador for orvis but to be honest with you they make good everyone's making great rods so when people say this it's all about personal preference but essentially the way i the way i look at rods is you got to look at a couple things one is the size of the fish you're catching obviously uh which where i'm at in central pennsylvania i mean the average fish is 12 14 inches you're not catching many legitimate 20 inch fish every season uh usually uh and the other thing is look at the size of the fish and then also the amount of weight that you're using on your typical rig you know we were talking about thinning out the leader, you really thin leaders, and because of that, you can get away fishing very little weight. I'm, I'm talking about just in some of the pocket water now where I'll fish when I go out and visit my brother in West Yellowstone, I'm fishing like a, a 14 or like a size 16 one fly, and I'll put a like a little size 764 tungsten bead with a few lead wraps, and that's all the weight I need to fish, not the middle channel, but just kind of the edges. Uh, that's all the weight you need. 
And you need a rod that makes casting that lightweight system easy. I think for many people, if you're trying to cast like these modern Euro, the biggest problem people have is that they cast these really long rods or these long leaders, very lightly weighted flies with a fly rod that is designed to cast a fly line. We're not using fly lines anymore with this system. Pretty much we're using either a, a Euro line, which is a very, very thin fly line, or pretty much all monofilament. So you need a rod that basically has a very soft tip that allows you to easily just flick the wrist and make the cast. I mean, we you can again, we talked about the the issues with bait fishing and spin fishing, but the, the physics of this cast is very similar to that of bait cast. And you have a, a heavier fly and a very thin leader. So the heavier the fly, the thinner, the easier the cast is going to go, but a, a softer rod. So a lot of what I'm fishing is like anything from a 10 foot to an 11 foot that can usually handle a three weight. And these three weight rods have a three weight tip, but they've got a yeah. massive butt section. They have like a five or a six weight. So it gives you two levers. You can play the bigger fish on lighter tippets with a tip. But if you want to really apply torque, if you're fishing heavier tippet, just lower the rod uh, and you can use that butt section and, and force them in. So I like these longer rods because it just makes casting uh, easier and a lot more enjoyable. And, and quite honestly, these Euro rods have become like my dry fly, favorite dry fly rod. I mean, yeah. I know you guys. I know you guys are great fly casters, but goddamn, like I rarely do. I need to make a cast over thirty feet, thirty-five feet for most of my trout fishing. And when you have a fast action fly rod and a short length of line, it is very tough to try to cast a super fast action fly rod with very little fly line because that rod doesn't load. And you really have to work that rod. But the beautiful thing about these rods is. It just requires just a little flick of the wrist, whether you're flicking a nymph or if you have a, a lightweight, you know, fly line. But these rods are fantastic, not just for nymphing, but just for just basic short range fly casting, which is what most of us do on a trout stream day in and day out. Yeah, and you made a really good point. Um, so I, I'm I'm playing around a lot with um, a couple rods, and and I got this. Um, I got a 12 foot three weight that is just unbelievable, and I'm actually doing a lot of dry fly fishing with it. Uh, and it's actually, you know, it's these rods teach you how to cast correctly, even a dry fly or a wet fly or anything, uh, because you, you slow it down. It's almost like casting bamboo. It's like nice, slow, steady stroke into it. And you could do so much um, with a longer rod. And some people don't like longer rods, but I, I invite them to try longer rods because you could fish really long leaders. You could do tremendous things with, with mending, you know, stack mending and, and all kinds of mending and slack line mending. And you could just do so much great stuff with a longer rod. And even in tight quarters, I ran into a guy... Um, and you know, I ran into a guy on the Latorte one time, and he was he was dapping because the Latorte you you can't really get into spots, and some spots you could can't wade into because of all the vegetation and the muck, and you get stuck and everything. And he was using a fifteen foot rod he made, um, and he was dapping behind these watercress piles and in these channels, and getting his little streamer, his little sculpin to move around, or he was fishing a couple crest bugs, and he was dapping. And I know my uh, good friend uh, up in heaven, uh, Mr. Ed Shank, he used to love his little five-foot rods. And he used to used to see him every Saturday by Bonnie Brook, nymphing on his hands and knees. Um, and he likes shorter rods. But um, I'm just, I think the longer rod, even in tighter quarters, you could do a lot more dapping. And I think sometimes dapping is is reminiscent of the old days dom juliana those people they had like 16 foot rods 17 foot rods long pieces of of cane and long pieces of 
of uh, saplings, birch saplings and things of that nature. And they used to do that. And I think with this whole Euro Tenkara gig, um, you know, it's very similar to that whole scenario. Have you done much Tenkara at all, George? Yeah, I used to do a lot of it, especially when I was getting my kids into fly fishing. And then a lot of the, the, the vets uh, or people I've worked with, they have some sort of physical handicap. They don't really have full range. Tenkara and Euro rods, both of them are fantastic because essentially it, it, it's a tool that really requires very little force on your part to make a cast work. But no, I got my kids into Tenkara when they were age uh, four and they caught their first trout on rod uh, on a floor fly rod on Tenkara rod when they were four years old but you know i like Tenkara, but it has its downfalls a lot of what i'm doing with casting is you know they call it high sticking but i don't like that term because with this yeah. zero approach they talk about casting keeping the high rod tip anymore these days i i'm i'm keeping the rod tip really low almost level to the water's edge and just using my line hand to manage the line uh so wind doesn't have as much of an effect I, my hands in a better position to set the hook when it occurs so um Tenkara is fine, but it's definitely limited uh, with those factors. Yeah. Um, so when you're going to be breaking down, the, you're going to be looking for that water. Um, uh, so just tell me how much time are you going to spend in pocket water? I mean, do you fish flats at all? Do you, how do you, can you, Euro fish flats? Give me your analysis of a stream. Take us through riffle water, pocket water, pool, tail out, and how you're going to approach them, number one. And number two, um, I instruct my people to fish in bowling alleys. Like, we have a big tailwater here in the Muskegon, and I also fish the Manistee tailwater. And and I fish the East Branch, and of course, the Never Sink, where we have a summer home. But I tell people to, to fish, fish in bowling alleys. I think there's like seven bowling alleys across this whole river. And the trout could be anywhere from the bank to the middle section of the river to anywhere cover every bowling lane and you got about a three foot bowling lane or four, I'd say like a four foot bowling lane. Cause that sun tends to be the maximum distance that a fish could be alerted to. How do you take us from a riffle to the tail out and how are you, where are you going to look to, to Euro fish that water? If so, you know what I mean. Yeah. That's, so, a, that's a, that's a whole book in itself, but. It is. Uh, uh, but when it comes to the timing, when I look at riffles, I mean, I look at riffles, riffles as pretty much like fast speed, fast lane feeding activity. So fish that are in there are not always, they're not resting. They're in there usually to do one thing and that is to feed. So typically if you have a good presentation into a particular seam within like two or three casts, if I don't move a fish and I think my presentation is good, I'm gonna move over to the next bowling alley. But in, in faster pocket water, I don't I don't spend too much time because uh, those fish are usually on, they're on a feeding frenzy. Presentation is, doesn't need to be usually as good. And if you make a good drift, they're usually gonna hit it on that first one or two shots. So I tend to work pocket water a lot faster. Uh, and as you start going into slower moving sections of water, that's when I begin to slow down, uh, especially if I'm on a, on, a, on, a, on a nice little run where you have a strong current dumping into a, a deeper cut. Even though I know fish are there, uh, they may be resting, they may not be feeding, but if I have a, a, a basically a nice prime line like that, I will camp out there. Uh, I will camp out there for a half hour to an hour to even two hours until I find uh, the recipe. Uh, because typically, the, 
and this is just the waters that I fish. I know there are, there are certain sections of water that will hold fish year round. And if I'm there at the right time of the day, I know fish in theory should be feeding. And if I'm not moving fish, I'm not going to just jump. I'm not going to leave fish to try to find new fish. I'm going to try to figure out the puzzle. And usually that comes down to the depth, the speed of your drift, and sometimes the, the direction of your presentation. But I, I will, especially in the slower moving sections of water, I will camp out because I know fish are there. Uh, and I'll, I'll hold tight until I figure it out. Yeah. So, um, get, you know, we, I don't think we got into this last time, but you know what, you know, there's so many words being thrown around today. So what is your definition of tight line nymphing between Euro nymphing? Is there any difference? What, you know, and, and the difference between Czech and Polish nymphing and French Spanish style tight line nymphing. Everybody's very confused about this. Um, Give us it's, that. It's, it's, it's partially my fault. My first book, when I wrote it, we, you know, my publisher definitely wanted to create like delineations or definitely categories of Euro nymphing or styles of nymphing. But in my opinion, it's all the same damn thing. When you look at the Czechs, the Poles, the French, the Sp pretty much, I think it's 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 the water types that these nationalities fish. And they've basically adapted the tight line system that is pretty much using uh, a long leader and keeping the rod tip a little bit higher, but they're just adjusting their rig, the length of the leader and their, their flies to the water that they're fishing and also the behavior. Uh, so it's just basically the same thing, but it's just adapted for the water types that you're fishing. Yeah. Ciders. Talk to us about ciders. How did you start using them? Where did you get introduced to them? How are ciders today different from ciders in the past? Uh, are, are ciders really an accurate... Um, an accurate barometer of the strike are, are they are are they as good as strike indicators um there's so many good strike indicators out there um you know ciders i think we started using ciders cripe back in the 80s when we had a red butt to a leader or a red butt end of a fly line uh but how give us your whole take on ciders and how they've evolved over the over the years and how you how do you how do you, are they a really good so in euro nymphing you're you're manipulating, you're triggering a strike pretty much in the old Lottie way. His dad would throw his bait up river and drag it along the bottom and you'd get fish to chase it. And, you know, I, we talked a lot about it in the wet fly swing uh, with, with Davey in the upstream and down, up and across wet fly presentation. And I did a lot of it for Atlantic salmon where they would chase that damn fly 10 feet downstream to, to grab that rubber leg pattern. Um, you're triggering a strike and, and the cider is, you know, give us your thoughts on the cider and, and how it's evolved and where you started and all that whole stuff. Yeah. So sometimes I am triggering the strike. So sometimes we're trying to do the induced lift, but many times now we're just trying to drift the a nymph uh, as naturally as you can a dry fly. So it's a little bit of both. And the cider is just that piece of monofilament built into your leader. And now there's colored markers space so you can paint your anywhere in your leader and it's going to create an, an immediate cider, which is what I'm currently using. But when I started fishing, nymphing, back in the day, back in the early 90s with Joe Humphreys, they always said a good nymph fisher could pick up pretty much like 60% of the strikes. So there's like 40% of the time it was going. But quite honestly, just through my observations, when you have an ultra-thin system, very sensitive with the right cider, like you're picking up on like 95%. As long as you have good line leader control, like, and that's what makes this so effective. Like you're you're gonna you're gonna have a 95% like connection rate. You're you're gonna be able to sense and detect that. So it is it is 
it's incredibly sensitive. Uh, the only indicator that I know that might be a little bit more sensitive would be like the New Zealand wool indicator. Uh, but other than that, or even like a real light dry dropper, but other than that, uh, it just gives you a straight line with an indicator. There's often a delay because, because still you have a, you have a buoyant object on the water and it still takes a second or so a split second for that surface tension to break to be able to basically pull that under so there's always a delay when you're working some sort of suspension device when you have a tight line with a euro system with an inline system with a cider the moment like the moment the fish strikes as long as you have good control and an ultralight system like you have an immediate reaction there there's no delay um so that is why i, I really believe it is by far um, a much more effective means of detecting strikes than an indicator. Now, there are definitely times you want to use an indicator, but when given a choice, I, I really feel an inline cider is going to be the, the best way of getting, getting that done. How, you know, how does water temperature affect the, as your way? I think you mentioned a little bit earlier, but um, so do we, uh, do we dry fly guys? I, I don't know. I think some people just spend too much time in one spot because they know there's fish there, but then they move too quickly and, and go past fish. Um, I think the question is, um, do you, do you let water temperature really dictate the way you fish or do you fish because you like the way this water looks? Uh, it's probably a combination of both. It's probably a stupid question, but um, you know, and that that's one thing. Do you, and now the second part of this question is how quickly do you think trout spit flies? Um, I'm a firm believer that I think we overset too quickly a lot of times and we miss a lot of fish. Um, I've gotten into, in my steelhead fishing, I wait for three good head shakes before I set the hook. Uh, I mean, it's kind of weird, but I think, I think we, a trout don't spit as quickly as we give them, as we think they do. And I think we blow a lot of strikes in a lot of ways, even dry fly fishing in a lot of things, because we're setting too early. We become just such jittery, nervous people now fishing so that's two part of the question how does water dictate your the temperature and what's your take on trout spitting early or or do you know how do you view that whole thing no that's a it, it, very interesting concept because i was talking about this section in the dry fly program i was doing earlier uh this month but it, again it depends on the system uh like where i'm fishing in central pennsylvania on spring creek for example like these fish they have been i've been told often will get caught anywhere between maybe 10 and 12 times a year, uh, even more. Like these fish are just routinely getting caught. And like during a, a blue wing olive patch last year, I noticed like in this little back bay, like every single fish that was coming up in this little back, bay, it would come up, it would eat a natural olive. But the moment it came up, inhaled a natural, like it immediately had like this, it was like anticipating getting like stuck in the mouth by a hook. And like, it was like, and you put your dry fly in there, it like it would spit it out in a split second. <laughs> and then you go to a, a small mountain stream where they don't get as much pressure. And like you're fishing, I hate to say it, like a mob fly. And, and those things, which, I mean, they, they just, they just keep, they, they don't let go of it. They just keep chomping and chomping on it. So there are some systems that they're, you know, especially highly pressured fisheries where they will, just, as soon as they feel anything unnatural, they're going to spit it. And there are some fisheries, I believe, that don't get as much pressure and they're going to hold, they'll hold on to it a lot longer, especially if it's, if it's chewy and tasty, like a big stream or like a big mop or like a worm pad or something like that. But it, it kind of depends, really depends on the system. 
Yeah, absolutely. Uh, give us give us your typical Euro uh, leader setup, um, starting with, you know, the butt section and just work us through for people that are taking notes and trying to grasp the way you're going to set up your typical average, you know, day-to-day Euro leader setup. Okay, so what I want to point out here is you don't need to buy, I mean, and I work for, I'm sponsored by companies that sell Euro leaders and like, don't waste your money on that crap. You really don't. When you, in my opinion, with Euro fishing these days, the way these light rods are designed, you don't need a taper. Pretty much anytime you add thickness to the leader, it's actually going to make casting the lighter weight nymph even that more, much more difficult. You want to create as less mass in the leader as you can, and you want the more mass in the fly. So pretty much like when I'm fishing for smaller trout here in central PA, I might have my, my leader might be a level section. It might be 20 feet of like three X tippet. It might be like a colored maxima. It might be a colored strand, whatever it is, but I'm like using like a, a colorful piece of like three X from my, my fly line, which usually never even sees the light of day. So don't waste your money on an $80 fly line uh on a euro line because that's just a waste of money go as thin as possible and that's where a mono system comes into place the only reason why you hear about euro systems or euro lines these days is usually because you have competitive anglers competitive anglers have to follow these rules that the leader cannot exceed twice the length of the rod but if you're not competing on the world championships or if you're fishing waters that have regulations that allow you to fish as long as leaders possible just use a long level so i'm going to have like 20 25 feet of like 3x tippet um, and then I'm going to have my actual tippet, like my, my fluorocarbon. So that 3X might be nylon, and then I might run anywhere from three to six feet of fluorocarbon tippet off of that to my fly. And then I have a, a marker made by scientific anglers. It's just a, an art marker, but based on the depth of the water, I will just mark on my tippet where I want my cider. And that is it. It is two parts with a marker. That is it. No taper, no knot. It is seamless incredibly effective and easy to cast. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you, you made it so nice and simple and we, you know, so much has been written about it and so much has been like, we've, we've uh, massaged this thing to death and we've made it more complex. We probably scared more people away from your own nymphing than probably attracted them because, um, there, it could be really common. You just summed it up very quickly, um, for butt section. So, you know, some people are still monofilament people. Some people are total fluorocarbon people. It's tough not to, it, it's tough to ignore the the benefits of fluorocarbon. Um, you know, you hear, oh, I hate the knot strength. Well, I think they're, you know, you're not just not doing the right knot and you're not cinching your knots down properly. And, you know, a lot of that's based on you. You're doing your knots too quickly. Um, but for butt sections, you know, I, I'm still a big fan of Maxima. I, you know, a lot of people are still. Uh, and as you go down into Tippet. Um, you know, are you, give me, give us your philosophy on, you know, monofilm fluorocarbon, uh, and certain brands that you're using that you like to use, um, you know, give us a little take on that. Well, you know, disclosure, I'm an SA ambassador, but everyone's making good fluorocarbons. But when it comes to nymphing and streamer fishing, my tippet, not my butt section, but my tippet is, is always, it's always fluorocarbon. You know, the right. knot strength, but more importantly, it's the abrasion resistance. You know, I, especially when you're crawling your flies near stream bottom, you're, you're going to lose far fewer flies with fluorocarbon than what you will with nylon. At least the nylons I've t tried here in the U.S. So all my tippet is always fluorocarbon. Uh, it's just because I lose far fewer flies. Right. 
as far as uh, what knots are you using for your flies now? And uh, do you find any variations? Sometimes you use different knots for different situation. What are you using? Yeah, for my for my tippet knots, I mean, I'm still using a five turn clinch from most of my my nymphs. But you know, going back to a good friend Davey, so anytime I'm going like size 16 and smaller uh, on my nymphs or even dry flies, I'm always going to use his Davy knot. His Davy knot is 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 amazing, as is the man. Yeah, he's uh, got some pretty cool shit. All right, we are with George Daniel, and we are in part two of Below the Meniscus with him, and we're talking all the all the juicy stuff right here. Uh, but we are going to be right back. Able reels have been the pinnacle of reel technology for, for decades now. Since Steve Abel, aerospace engineer, started the company in California, their technology and their manufacturing, the drag systems are simply impeccable. Um, they work to perfection and everything they do is just a piece of art, including their art design on their reel systems. Uh, they're beautiful artists that they have in these series of all the different trout, salmon, steelhead, saltwater fish, uh, utilizing technology with beauty and incorporating designs by Derek DeYoung, Larco, Underwood, other people are simply the state of the art. What's so cool is when you take a picture of a fish, like I often do with Atlantic salmon and brown trout and hold my reels up against them, it's just beauty in the hand and beauty in the fish. Uh, and it just totally relates to the whole experience of why we fly fish and why we love what we're doing. Um, so please look at Able Reels next time you're looking at a large arbor reel and, and look at the difference and look at the quality, the workmanship. Another USA made company that gives each reel a hand touch and they're boutique made reels, especially the paintings. If you opt for the designs, which can be pricey, but if you're looking for that special gift for someone, or you're trying to treat yourself, Able Reels are the way to go. Contact Jeff Patterson and Able, and you will never be disappointed in an Able product. I've had an emotional attachment to Orvis since I was a little boy growing up in the Niagara frontier with my paper route and with my hard-earned money I saved up my money to buy one of the first Orvis graphite rods that came out. To this day and over the decades, I still collect their Orvis graphite rods like the Trico, the Spring Creek, the Far and Fine, the Beaver, and I still fish them. I was an Orvis pro for 20 years in my guiding career that I still guide today. And during that time, they asked me to write a book for Orvis called The Orvis Pocket Guide to Great Lake Salmon and Steelhead. It's an amazing rod, the new Helios, and when they first sent me the blanks, for the Helios, I asked them, where are they going with this rod and what do you want to do with it? And they basically said to build the finest graphite rod that is made, and they sure did. Today's Helios 3, the D is the faster tip flex rod, and the F version is the more moderate rod, the mid flex. If you want the finest fly rod to be casted today, get the Helios 3. I use it every day and I will continue to use it.
I can't say enough superlatives about a company like Patagonia. Their designs, their style, their function, their quality, everything they do is amazing for the mountain climber, for the skier, for the surfer, for the fly fisher. I've been a Patagonia pro for over 30 years and I've lived their clothing lifestyle. Practically every piece of clothing I have is Patagonia. My whole family has absorbed their lifestyle and my son, Peter, who is so enamored with the Patagonia lifestyle, worked in their Patagonia corporate store in Washington, D.C. Yvonne Chouinard is an avid spay caster, an Atlantic salmon uh, aficionado, steelheader. He started and pioneered a Tenkara movement here in, in the North America and he embodies the company and he's given so much of this company to the earth and to the public. When you buy Patagonia, you give back to the planet. And this summer I've been really enjoying their lightweight waders in this hot weather we've had. And I warned their waders from Iceland to Tierra del Fuego. Please give back to the earth, buy Patagonia, and you will never ever forget the quality of this product. We are back and we are talking with the marvelous George Daniel, Professore George Daniel, who is teaching all the young, beautiful up-and-coming Euro-nymphers and streamer fishers and dry fly fishers up at Penn State, all his magic and his art and his craft. And uh, we are talking about, we talked about little technical stuff here about leaders and stuff like that. Uh, fly lines. We didn't talk really quickly about fly lines. How do you think they've evolved over the years and... Uh, you're ambassador for scientific anglers with lines that I use um, and uh, I'm very proud of. Um, tell us about your whole take on lines today. And and now now that we've gone into monofilament and nymphing, so now that we could use monofilament out through the whole rig, like like uh, Mr. Humphreys did back in the 80s, and he wrote that great article. I mean, you, you've seen so much going on today, and it's. I guess you're going to tell us a lot about personal preferences, maybe, what has come down, what makes you happy, right? Yeah, so what it comes down to is, I mean, when you when you are nymphing or any sort of fishing, like part of the game is line control with your line hand. You know, I, I honestly, right now, my hands are young. I still have good dexterity. Pretty much the thinner you can go with your monofilament, basically the more sensitive it is. I mean, it's just, it's basically simple physics. Uh, the less mass you have between you and your fly, the less sag and the greater connection. So the, the thinner you can create, uh, the straighter the line you're going to have between you and your flies and greater sensitivity. But for a lot of people, especially like some of my clients that are maybe a little bit older, maybe you're in fishing in cold conditions, trying to, uh, to manage six-pound test monofilament with your line hand is just not possible, especially maybe up in, in northern Michigan this time of the year. So definitely there, there is a place for, for Euro lines, and some people do like using a Euro line. Uh, and today now, because of technology and because of preferences and everything's kind of just niched out into all kinds of facets, I mean, you have Euro lines that have braided cores for better sensitivity, and then you have cores made of nylon, so you can actually, like, if you want to actually cast small dry flies, you can do that. So uh, sometimes it is maybe a little too much, and that's why I, as long as I can, I just stick to monofilament. It's far more effective, and I'm still able to manage it with my hands for now. Yeah. Um, yeah, it makes sense. A lot of people use amnesia. Stuff like that, you know, amnesia has been big. A lot of the, a lot of the, uh, 
A lot of the uh, the backing, uh, the shooting lines uh, are very popular too. Um, the ones that we use for spay line, for spay uh, heads like Skagit and Scandi lines, that, that shooting material is pretty cool. Cortland makes some good stuff. Scientific English makes good stuff. Um, you know, everybody's making really good shooting lines too, so you could use that. Um, let's talk about, you know, let's talk a little bit more about your personal stuff and, um, First of all, if you have places, what you know, you love Michigan, and we appreciate that, and uh, Pure Michigan loves you for that. Uh, but tell us a couple of the iconic places that you've fished uh, in the last, uh, you know, twenty years or so that you've fell in love with, and 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 your beauty, your enjoyment of the beauty of those areas, and things that really give you sentimental feelings about them. Yeah, I mean, I mean, every year I go visit my brother in West Yellowstone, and obviously the Madison and, and a lot of the surrounding area is beautiful and great fisheries. But I still love going down to the ranch on the Henry's Fork and doing nothing yeah. but dry fly fishing. I love, you know, it's, you know, I've never fished a nymph underneath, you know, even under a dry fly. You know, there's sections on the on the Henry's Fork which you just wait for rising fish. And to be honest with you, uh, I, I've gone down there. I went down there two mornings last summer. And I just sat in the bank uh, for maybe a total of eight hours combination. It maybe made a total of eight casts and caught two fish. But it was, I, I love it. Uh, I love the tradition. And I do love honoring those uh, that were before us. And, you know, I know I could catch a lot of fish if I wanted to sink a nymph. And it's not illegal down there. But sometimes it's it's nice to follow traditions. And, and when you do that, it feels like you're a little bit a part of the history, you know, you know, of all the greats that were fishing there and all the greats that have fished there. So I like sometimes, you know, wearing my, my beautiful shirt and collared shirt and just following the rules and regs that so many of the, the masters before us have. It just feels me, makes me feel a little more connected to our past. Wonderful. So when you go to the Henry's Fork, they see George Danley. Oh, God damn it. He's going to bring that Euro nymphing over here. Let's shoot. Jesus Christ. You know, there's nothing sacred out here anymore. So um, you fished, um, you fished the South Holston because I was down there just after you were there one time. And what take you, what's your take on the South Holston? So, I mean, I, I love, I just love the diversity. I think one of the things about fishing is, I mean, there are people that will fish the same body of water their entire life and they just develop this amazing relationship to it. But for me, the way my brain works is that once I fish a water long enough in a particular section, my brain goes on automatic pilot. Basically what I mean by that is I stop thinking, I stop guessing. I pretty much just, I think I know what to do and I just do it and I don't, I just go through the motions without actually putting much thought and consciousness into it. And the best thing to break that habit and to actually get you thinking outside the box is fishing new waters that have different behaviors, different fish, different be everything. So I love going to the South uh, in the wintertime, like the South Holston, uh, the Watuga. Uh, I, I mean, I just got back from a 12 day trip down the white river earlier this, you know, last year, but yeah. I just love heading South. I, I like a little break. Quite honestly, it was always my dream to live in Montana with my wife in a beautiful cabin. But after I, 45 years old, arthritis, the last thing I want is a uh, freezing condition. So I, I like, well, you got back. arthritis too. Oh, I have bad, bad arthritis from school. Oh, good. That makes me feel better. 
<laughs> because my arthritis is killing me and I'm like losing my mind. And well, we got to talk about meds and, and docs and stuff like that. Jeez, that's well, you know, I, what does it say? Misery likes, likes company, but, yeah. um, but it's good to hear that somebody else got, cause I, it's kill. I think like 30 years of guiding in this freaking terrible snow weather for steelhead and shit in the wintertime and not wearing gloves back in the days when I was badass and I was doing all this stuff. I was like, I, I destroyed every joint in my body and then playing soccer at a, because that just killed me too. But, well, okay. Well, we got something in common there. We got to talk about medicines and treatments. I got some good stuff for you. And good diet too for arthritis. Uh, but anyways, um, so let's talk about, um, let's talk about uh, dynamic nymphing, uh, how that book took place. How was the process? Give us the whole, give us the whole author's recap, the screenplay for dynamic nymphing. Give us your whole, how did that all come about? And how long did it take you? Uh, and then we'll go into your other books, but start there. Oh, like anything else, it's perfect timing. That's what it came down to. So I, I started competing, getting involved with the U.S. team in 2005. And at that point, Euro nymphing competitive fly fishing was, was talked about, but it was just really starting to, to catch some ground and catch some heat in the United States. So uh, I did two years of comp competition. My first two years, I had some pretty good results uh, nationally and internationally. And then, uh, you know, a book publisher came to me and it was a topic that they, no one, they didn't have anyone to write about. And through Paul Weimer, Paul Weimer, you know, our mutual friend. Hello, uh, Paul. We Paul. both say, yeah. Hey, Paul, you rock star, you, we love you, Paul. And, uh, yeah. We love you, Paul. Oh, yes, we do. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, and, go ahead. and Paul, Paul connected the dots uh, with me, to, with Jay Nichols, and uh, the rest was history. It was just, yeah, and at that point, I mean, I had, I've been tight-line nymphing since, you know, the 19, early 1990s with Joe and, you know, Central PA, but it wasn't until like 2005, 2006, when I really started getting kind of more of a, a global view on Euro nymphing. Uh, and that's what it was. Uh, they asked me to kind of write about my experiences. I was pretty well traveled up to that point and that's how the the book came about and you know just like in anything else you look at your published work like a year from now like you there's a lot of things that you would like to have said that you didn't or you might have changed but the content uh for the most part the structure is pretty good but the riggings and the patterns they've all changed uh in in like lefty Christ said i mean people will come up to me after a program and say, well, you know, this was like last year. And people will say, well, in dynamic nymphing, I said, well, that was 2010 when that book came out. Like you would want, you know, you, you want people that you talk to, like you want them, like you don't want them saying the same thing 15 years later, like you want them to evolve. And th there is a saying that you evolve or die. And that's what I'm trying to do. I'm, I'm trying to get better each and every day. And that usually means changing up some part of my game. Yeah, publish or die. What? That's the uh, the professor's um, professor's logo. You got to be published in college, so you're gonna have to write a new paper every year and be published. The one of the problems with publishing now is by the time you, but yet by the time it comes out, it's already old hat, and it's like Jesus Christ. I wish I had it, but uh, that's why they have all the. It's I'm doing a lot of writing online and blogging and stuff that I could just bam straight uh, real time stuff. So it it's tough, but um. So that yeah, it was a great book. I remember when I was signing my. Uh, all my with uh, Trish Manny and up and up at Stackpole and I selectivity book came out. I was signing all uh, all the books. They want you to autograph them like you did all your books. And and there's a big picture. There's a big thing of dynamic nymphing on the wall right in front of me. And I was my 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 pen was shaking because I'm like, will I ever be able to match up to that great George Daniel and dynamic nymphing there? And so they oh. you were like you were yeah. like the god over there. And I was just this little 
Polish guy coming in there trying to sign my name in Polish, you know. You're a god when when they make money. So it was a yeah, it was a good deal for me. It worked out pretty well for both of us. Absolutely. Um, so let's get into uh let's get into your streamer book. Um how did that strip set? Um, you know, you went from nymphing, you go to streamers, so you know, two very hot topics of the day everybody's getting into it you know and and uh, the god of streamers mr gallup if you're listening i know you've been listening to my podcast six seven times over kelly so we know i i see i see that little uh your your little vp thing uh vpn coming up in in where you're at i'm just kidding kelly god bless you kelly hope you're well this winter hope your knee's good doing good um you know, um, how did you get uh, attracted to streamers? Who are you, some of your mentors? And and uh, how did you get approached to do a streamer book, going from nymphing to streamers? And did you, did you say, hey, I want to do a streamer book? Or, you know, give us give us the whole screenplay on, on your strip set. Again, so this is like the, the Michigan connection. So starting in 2009, 2001, I did, uh, it was like called the Versus, National, Versus Fly Fishing Championship. But long story short, I got to meet a guy named Russ Madden at this competition in Pennsylvania. Yeah. And then yeah. we just shot the shit, had, had a good time. And then after the competition, he said, come up to Michigan. So just like two months later, I took him up on his offer, my wife and I, and we came up and we fished the Manistee. And, you know, I had fished, you know, the Bucktails and the Mickey Fins up to that point and like the Muddlers and it had good success, but it wasn't until like I spent time with like Russ and then with, you know, other anglers, like usually even up to that point, I was traveling across the, across the country, but streamer guides and anglers, like it was the last case resort, like when nothing else is working, cast a woolly bugger, cast like hell. But what was really interesting to me is watching guys like Russ, and then I got to fish with Russ, uh, with uh, you know Jack Ford and Alex Lafkis and other people. But right. this is a system, like you guys up in, in Michigan, like there, like you guys have the system dialed in. Like I don't think there's a state in the country that is m- more well equipped to deal with a wide range of conditions with streamer fishing than the Michigan anglers. So I, as soon as I started fishing up there and realized like there's a, there's a whole system like, and, and it's an ever, never ending minutia of just information and impossible techniques and impossibilities. That's what really started piquing my interest. Um, and after the, the success of the nymphing book, pretty much for like three years. And when I write a book or do anything else, like it's like a, it's like a bad character. Like you pretty much like, that's all I did. Like, even if it was summertime, I wasn't dry fly fishing. Like I was fishing streamers and that's, that's pretty much all I did uh, for three years. And I just basically just spent three years fishing my own observations, but also hiring guides uh, throughout the country, learning from them, uh, trying to experience as much as I can and just base the information uh, off that and, and put the information into a, into a book. Yeah, it was a very, very good book. And, and the way you represented all the different schools and different thought processes, but, you know, it all seemed to come, it, well, Kelly and Troutsman and then Russ Madden with Kelly and working there. And then and then uh, Mark Sadati coming with the East Coast. I wrote a whole little chapter, a big chapter actually about it in my Nexus book, but it was the connection with the saltwater and Mark Sadati coming and, and showing us that, you know, you could fish one foot flies and it was like, holy hell, who the hell ever thought we could fish flies that big. And then, you know, it, and then it come, a lot of it came down to, you know, Ed Shank with his, with his Shank sculpins and his deer hair sh- and that V shape to it and the sculpin shape and based on the muddler. So get George's book. Uh, both books are great. 
uh, because they give you a good perspective on the on the whole the whole transition. Uh, the new book, the evolution book, give us the inspiration of that, and I can't wait to read it. Uh, I got a copy coming to me. Um, give us your thoughts on on what prompted that book, and and wh- what are we going to see in this in this new book? So with this new book, this is pretty much all new, a lot of new concepts, but new riggings. But I think with my streamer book and nymphing book, I included so many leader formulas, not only for me that I would use on for variety of conditions, but also leader formulas from friends and so forth. It was a dense book with lots. Of, but what I wanted to do is in the last, I would say maybe two or three years, I I, I, won't, I wouldn't say I've become a minimalist. I've become more of an essentialist where I pretty much, uh, you know, and I talked. I just did a YouTube video. And I talked about this, but you you look at guys, uh, boy, uh, like Larry Dahlberg and so forth. Like, and you go into some of these guys' workshops, and there's just shit on the walls, and ever, and it's just chaos. But there are like borderline geniuses that just that love. And I think maybe I forget. Maybe it was Einstein that said like a an empty room is a sign of an empty mind. And for yeah. me, that is very much the case because. Having lots of systems, lots of leader formulas, lots of gear, all it does, it just it complicates me, uh, what I'm doing. Right. And what I want to do is just try to boil it down. I want to look at dry flies, nymphs, and streamers, and maybe come up with like one or two leader formulas that I use like 95% of the time of each of those situations, come up with two or three rigs, a handful of patterns for dry flies, but it's pretty much something I could stick into one pack, and I could right. use day in and day out, 365 days a year, and just yeah. simplify what I've done and try to condense it. That's what this book is about. Good. And, and, you know, we become more minimalist and essentialist. Um, they probably go hand in hand uh, because we just learned that there's a lot of clutter and junk and uh, we get, we get, we walk around in pouches, but there's like one fly box and there are, you have one shelf in your, in your tray that you use. And I'm doing the same thing. I'm, you know, I'm refining down to, to specifics and, but yeah, I mean it's it's just a it's a beautiful transition process. Let's talk a little bit about uh, the ecology, uh, climate change, your impact on trout waters. You know, I did a really good two part, I think a two part series with Dr. Bachman um, back two years ago when I started the Hollowed Waters podcast, and he's a wonderful man. It just uh, such a pleasure to talk to a ninety year old guy that has such a, a verve for life and such a passion and and just doesn't stop talking and he's just such a great guy um you know he said back then he says i said we talked about climate change and and he said man climate change is kicking the shit out of pennsylvania right now and it's kicking the shit out of new york and it's kicking the shit out of the east coast and and a lot of places that are getting hit with more warmer weather what what is your take on climate change right now and how it's affecting pa trout waters and and how? What's your take and outlook for wild trout in Pennsylvania? And your whole thoughts process about what the Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission is trying to do? Um, give us your whole. Uh, give us your whole uh, theoretical viewpoints and on that whole thing. That's that's a loaded question. That's a loaded <laughs> question. Well, I got I got to throw that question. It's on my papers here. But Listen, you know. whether whether you are on the left side or on the right side, like it's. And whether you think human interaction is occurring or if it's just natural processes that have occurred, not, global warming is happening. Like it's it's happening. Things, weather patterns are not as steady as they were. We're definitely having a warming of the you know, waters. You know, like typically, like I was done musky fishing like seven, eight years ago. And I know this is all cycles, but I was done like late November, early December. Like last year, 
a day before Christmas, we had frozen water. And pretty much after that, I was musky fishing pretty much. I could musky fish 364 days of the year on my local waters that would typically be frozen over probably for about three months. Uh, it's definitely happened. I mean, and it's scary. I mean, but I don't know what anyone can do. I mean, you look at Montana, you look at the Yellowstone River. I mean, you look now you actually have like smallmouth bass. Uh that are, you know, starting to move up into the Yellowstone and not only Yellowstone, but now they're starting to move up into these tributaries, into trout tributaries. It's it's happening. And I don't know what a biologist can do or anyone can do because you have a fish species, especially something as prominent as a bass, that's gonna move in. It's just going it's gonna claim territory. You know, killing a whole water system and then trying to reintroduce something. I don't know yeah. that the answer. It's just it's a loaded question, and I have no idea what the hell. And quite honestly, I'm not very optimistic. I try to be, I try to be optimistic, but the way we are using natural resources, the way we are just, like, I'm living in state college. Like it's a beautiful area, but it's quickly turning into a shithole. Like uh, some of my favorite places on Spring Creek that you look now, there are retirement des- you know, retirement hotel. Like what was this pu- yeah. beautiful valley one time you could see five six years ago? Now I have this freaking high rise in my view. Um, and now with like our Spring Creeks, typically like when uh, we had like rarely would Spring Creek ever get muddy. Now right. as soon as you have a rain, like yeah. the non-porous surfaces, like it, we have flash floods all the time here. Um, you can't stop development. It's happening, but I'm, you know, in, in my immediate area, I'm not very overly optimistic and plus all our groundwater. I mean, it's all aquifers and even the, the geologists are going to tell us at some point they, and they don't even know when the threshold is, but when, when we hit it, we're going to, we're going to be in serious trouble. So I'm not, <laughs> I'm trying to enjoy this as much as I can trying to educate, trying to get as many people as we can interested in the sport to hopefully protect it. But Overall, I mean, we're human nature, and they always said about history, like the, the idea about history is to learn not to repeat mistakes. That's complete bullshit. The whole idea about history is to basically understand human nature, and human nature is we don't learn a freaking thing what we have from the past. And whatever we've done in the past is pretty much what we're going to be doing as a blueprint for the future. So quite honestly, it's not looking good for us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're you're right. Uh, wild trout in Pennsylvania. Your thoughts on that? I know you're trying to reclassify. I know a good friend, uh, Eric Richard, with, on PA Wild Trout um, Network. Uh, he's doing a lot. You know, he's trying. He did a nice law change that protected fish migrating browns and and mostly browns migrating out of spring creeks into big river systems down in his area and protecting them. Uh, fish are going to be moving around a lot more given different thermal conditions of rivers. Um, you're going to see a lot more crossing over. Um, what what do you think? Do we stock too many trout in Pennsylvania? Do you think uh, we're at a we're, we're favoring stock trout over wild trout? There's all kinds of debates going on and all kinds of heated arguments and all kinds of chat rooms and stuff. What's your whole take on wild trout in Pennsylvania and what we need to do for them? Well, listen, my wife works for the Pennsylvania Fish and Milk Commission, so I got to be careful with what I say. But, I, I was going mean, to say that. <laughs> but, but even, even she and, and most of the people within the commission, they understand like it's it makes economic and financial sense to stock fewer fish. And and they are really right now after graduate school, I worked with the habitat division where we would go in and do all the bunker bust, you know, all the bunk and ha- you know, habitats that they did in Wisconsin uh, back in the mm-hmm. back in the day. So within 
within the last 10, 15 years, the Pennsylvania Fish and Boat Commission, whether you like their stance or not, they have really gone pro-habitat. Like their habitat division, which yeah. were, there was only like a handful of us in there when I was working there. Now they have divisions all across the state. Like it is like pretty much gone like tenfold with the amount of people. So there's, they're definitely trying to understand that if there is a self-sustaining system that is good, put some regulations on it, put the habitat in there, and just let nature take care of itself. And you're seeing a lot more of that, which is actually uh, really awesome to see. Like they've been doing a lot of work locally on my local waters on, on Lower Fishing Creek. But, you know, they definitely stock fish. And quite honestly, I understand the, the byproducts with stocking fish, but there are still areas in the state of Pennsylvania, like around Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, that you can, you know, you're providing recreational opportunities for anglers that would never have had it otherwise. There are places where they just can't have wild fish. so. There are some places, as long as you can raise fish, you know, without too much, you know, damage, I see as being per perfectly fine. But I, I am completely against putting stock fish in wild trout streams where yeah. there's some sort of competition. And you're seeing less and less of that. And there's a lot of debate right now. And a lot of the streams now, you're seeing that they're, they're definitely limiting where before they would stock fish over wild trout. You're seeing now... They're putting in regulations and then just reducing the stock and just letting the natural population take care of itself. So in my opinion, the Fish and Boat Commission, even though my wife's employed by them, is actually, in my opinion, doing a pretty good job proactively thinking about letting nature take care of itself and just helping yeah. them. Yeah. I think I think you guys have always done a pretty good job, to be honest with you. Um, and ever since my days, I used to fish PA almost every weekend back in the 80s when I was a young 20-something buck in D.C. I was always impressed with, you know, the wild trout preservation of the of the spring creeks of the Cumberland Valley, Latour, Big Spring. I mean, they, they're, they're doing the best that they can. And people still want to have to catch fish. People still want to go fishing. If we're, we're you're, you, you know, you said what's happening to State College. Wild trout don't have much of a future when when civilization is growing at such a rapid pace as it is right now. I mean, wild trout, the fact that we have wild trout in a, in a stream like the Latour, for instance, it, it, in a stream like Spring Creek and State College is a monumental achievement for the strain of brown trout to exist in, in urban despite we trying to kill them with pipe breaks and another poison spill on you know, the, the Army War College and their watercrest ball. We, we're trying to wipe them out by our stupidity. And and the fact that they still exist is there. So you got you got to create a fishery for people to enjoy. So there is a place for stockfish and there's a place for wild fish. And how do you marry the two is going to be always a fine line. And, you know, everybody's trying to do the best. We have to be a little more... I think a little more uh, patient and a little more um, understanding that we can't have wild trout everywhere because we're we're mad in fascination with wild trout. Everything's got to be wild. Look at the red. Look at the red adipose. Look at this. Look at it. But it's not going to happen at the, at the weight we're going. So we have to be realistic, and we have to be somewhat liberal in this and say, hey, man, you know this is the way it is. And I think Pennsylvania does a phenomenal job, in my opinion. So, as an outsider, and I have fished Pennsylvania quite a bit, so I, I think you guys are doing the best you can, and you have a ton of water to manage too. We're going to take one more break, and then we're going to conclude with George Daniel on part five of Below the Meniscus. We will be right back. I've known Marcos 
at Hairline for a long time since he had his fly shop in Glen Allen in Chicago suburbs, the fly in field. Marcos was a serious, serious fly tying guru, and he had every material known to mankind imported from all over the place. Marcos has since gone to Hairline and has been there for decades now, and he's done such an amazing job of, of taking that company and taking it to the upper limit of having a one-stop place where you get the ultimate quality in hooks and materials and feathers and tinsels and designs and tubes. They pretty much have everything for the trout, the salmon, the steelhead fly fisher, the warm water fly fisher, but really they've come into their own, especially in the spay area with the RX hooks, the Daiichi Alec Jackson hooks, all the intruder wires and materials by Greg Senyo, um, and importing some of the best products possible. Um, you won't go wrong by going to Hairline and seeing the product offering they have. They really have pretty much everything. And, and even in the tube section, the HMH tubing and stuff like that, they have gone to the next level. So I highly encourage you to shop at Hairline. Tell Marcos I said hi and it is truly one of the best um, all around places to go for looking for that special material that you're in the market for. I can't say enough good things about G. Loomis rods. They're made out in Washington State for over 30 years and their latest NRX series are absolute bombs. Steve Rajeff uh, designed these Apex Beasts that are just amazing. Uh, their, their new uh, Nano Silka um, resin system uh, is so amazing that it makes them so much lighter and they can cast with so much more power throughout the whole rod. Um, the lightness and, and the power generates are so much more important for the line speed. And, and especially if you're doing Scandi tapers, underhand casting with sinking heads, um, deep dredging skagits um, with, with heavier um, weighted intruders. Um, they do it pretty much all. And even with floating lines, like in long belly, uh, traditional spay casting, uh, the stamina for these rods and the long anchors in this traditional styling is amazing. Um, they're very rich looking and I highly recommend them as does my friend Tom Larimer, their representative out on the West Coast. So ask for G. Loomis rods when you go to your fly shop or visit them online at G. Loomis, but you won't be disappointed. Um, their, their, their whole technology is taking off and it's just simply amazing. If you're a serious spay fisherman and a swinger, uh, you're gonna really enjoy these rods. Hello listeners, as publisher of Hollowed Waters Journal, I'm really proud to bring you this magazine that we've put together and we've been going really strong for the last year. Uh, our accolade winning and amazing in-depth issues full of sumptuous photography, fly patterns and extensive tactical information can be purchased individually now in our archive series for you to read and reread over and over. We treat each topic and article as a mini Bible on the subject that you will explore with your passion and journey for trout, salmon, and steelhead fly fishing. And we'll hopefully rethink your relationship with these fish and make you fly addicted for life. No other magazine has the content and depth as Hollowed Waters Journal. Find out what you've been missing. 
and come to hollowedwaters.com today and subscribe. We are back with George Daniel, and we are concluding here. And um, it's been a wonderful time here talking about this. And uh, I'm just going to talk a little bit about, you know, we're, we're visions of of this great utopian, you know, what we want from our fisheries and what we want to happen in wild trout. We have to do better with it, and we got to do better with stocking. And we got to, you know, we're just we're just so exposed nerves now we demand everything right now this this iphone generation this new technology is creating uh everything has to be immediate everything texting everything has got to be you know we're, we're just we're just crazed uh, people bigger better faster more now and that's the way we think that's the way we're being taught and you know um you know and then we die and go to heaven and then we want to have everything perfect in heaven and there was a wonderful story by gm skews and it was a story called heaven but the vision of fulfilled desire and he came up with a gentleman uh by the name of mr caswell and uh the great you know gm skews father of modern dry fly fishing once wrote a little fiction concerning the late mr caswell he was a somewhat bumptious dry fly purist who he thought ended up in heaven and 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 has been provided with a perfect streamside cottage, the finest tackle and the finest ghillie. So what happened, Mr. Castwell was always that guy that's in those fishing clubs. And he's the guy that everybody hates because he always wants to always comes in and talks about he caught the biggest fish and he got the most. And he's the guy sitting in the bar, smoking the cigar and drinking the scotch and saying, when I when I did this, when oh no, when you say I got a fish, oh mine was bigger. Oh, this was bigger. No, everything I did was much bigger. And and Mr. Caswell was, I think, a solicitor. Uh, like skews and you know he was one of these fat cats that always had a big piece of beef and a big scotch and so when he died and went to heaven and um he got up to saint peter's gate and saint peter was interviewing him before he met god and um and uh you know they're sort of sizing up mr caswell and saying oh this guy is uh you know, pretty presumptuous type, and Peter doubted Caswell's credentials, and 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 all of a sudden God opened up the door and says, "Let him in, let him in, let let Mister Caswell in. I have a place for Mister Caswell." And uh, so there he is. Uh, he's all of a sudden on the most beautiful Spring Creek, beautiful chalk stream, and everything's got a intelligent gilly, and he's got the best rod in his hand and the best flies in his hand, and everything was perfect, and everything was going great. And 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 he just went, and the gilly took him, and it was the most beautiful meadow, and the watercress and the mayflies were dancing in the air, and everything was heaven. He was, he, he was in heaven and he was just giggling and giggling. And all of a sudden he sees a couple, he sees a beautiful brown trout rise and, and, and he casts the, uh, Gilly says, cast there, Mr. Caswell. And he casts his fly right over first cast point. The head comes up, takes it a beautiful two and a half pounder, beautiful fish, beautiful, just gorgeous brown. And, and the ghillie says, come, Mr. Castle, we have to go around the next bend. I see a fish rising down there. Okay, I'm coming, I'm coming. And he comes and he comes in. Mr. Caswell, there, there is your prize. And he casts again. A beautiful, beautiful first take, first, first drift. Fish comes up, takes the fly. 
and another perfect two and a half pound beautiful brown, just ideal. And and he's just about getting ready to release it. And the guy says, "Come, Mr. Castle, come, Mr. Castle. We have to go to the next bend. There's a beautiful several big browns rising there." And this is an older gentleman, and he's starting to huff and puff a little bit. And he's like, "You know, God for Christ's sakes!" And casts again, and he's out of breath. And another big brown comes up and takes the fly. And 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 he's like, and the gilly's looking, oh, Mr. Caswell, we have to keep going. And then so Mr. Caswell says to the gilly, how long is this confounded rise going to last, inquired Mr. Caswell. I suppose it will stop soon, eh? The gilly says, no, sir, said the keeper. What, isn't there a slack hour in the afternoon, says Mr. Caswell. The gilly says, no afternoon, sir. And Mr. Caswell says, what? Then what? About the evening rise. No evening rise, sir, said the keeper. Keep going. Then he says, well, I shall knock off now. I must have at least 30 brace from the corner. He goes, beg pardon, sir, but his holiness would not like that. You must keep casting. What, said Mr. Caswell, mayn't I even stop at night? No night here, sir, said the keeper. We must keep casting and catching. Then you do mean I have to go on catching these damn two-and-a-half-pounders at the corner forever and ever? The keeper nodded. Hell, said Mr. Caswell. Yes, sir, said the keeper. So there you go. Be careful what you wish for. He was exactly. up in Kevin catching a two-and-a-half-pounder. It was hell, Mr. Caswell. Yes, said the keeper. So, um... There's the story of Mr. Caswell. So be careful what you wish for, because it's not always there. And uh, be careful. Just just enjoy the one you got. So for all you fishmongers out there that like to catch 10,040 for 60, uh, start off with one and work to two. And then oh, you might be like Mr. Caswell, be stuck Euro-nymphing for 100 fish a day for the rest of your life without a break as your arthritis continues to bother your hands and your back aches and everything. Um, anyways, okay, that is it, George. We're going to get into our one-minute zip clips here. This is my doer's profile. And um, uh, this is sort of like we're going to talk a little bit about things that people don't know about, George. Okay, so the first thing is um, uh, a favorite movie of all time, George. Uh, probably the Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Oh. I mean, but it's just uh, it's one of my favorite favorite movies. It just kind of inspires me to get out and do something out of my comfort zone. So I love that movie. Favorite thing you like to do when you're not fly fishing? Photography. I really got into photography. Love the storytelling with a, a snapshot rather than with words. Your photography is getting really good, by the way. I really enjoy it on uh, looking on Instagram and everything. Keep up the good work. Have you found out the beauty of the iPhone 15 Pro yet? Oh, yeah. My old one died, so I was forced upon it because uh, it was the only option. So it's amazing. Have you gotten uh, you gotten uh, polarized filters for it yet? Uh, yes. Yeah. Oh, good. See, you're you're cheating like me too. Um, but uh, great. Okay, so books. Um, a favorite book of all time? A non-fishing. Non-fishing is uh, Leadership by John Wooden. I just love John Wooden. What he stood for as a coach, but more importantly, what he did for what he stood for as a as a human being and how to kind of help transform and, and lead uh, the younger generation into not only being good athletes, but more importantly, just good human beings too. So John uh, John Wooden on leadership. Wonderful. Uh, favorite uh, fishing book? 
They're a fishing book. I mean, still to this boy, uh, to this day, I grew up 14 years old, Joe Humphrey's Trout Tactics. There's a, a b- bunch of other great books, but that was the book that really got me interested in, in fly fishing and really got me interested at the, at the Penn State Fly Fishing Program. Wonderful. Favorite sport? Favorite sport? I still like basketball. I follow basketball. I like basketball. Who do you follow? What team? Oh, just it was like Penn State. I'm just a, a local kid, but I, I follow their their program. Wonderful. What uh, sports did you play when you were growing up? Basketball and track. Wonderful. You look like a pretty good long day. You're probably a good long distance runner at one time, I would think. I was okay. I was okay. Okay, athlete. Yeah. Okay. Um, favorite meal. So, if you had a favorite appetizer that you could get, this is your last meal, your last supper, your favorite appetizer. If you walked into someplace and you just, you could only get, you are talking about appetizer, because I'm a chef, so I'm big into food. Um, chef of appetizer, entree, and dessert. What would be your number one appetizer to design your perfect meal? Uh, crab cakes. Crab oh, cake. yes, 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 yes. Crab cakes. I had them at my wedding at the Allenbury. I got married at the Allenbury, and they used to have really killer crab cakes. Back to really thick, love crab cakes, just loaded with crab crab meat. Favorite entree of all time? Yeah, that's, that's tough. Oh, boy. I would say Cordon Bleu. Cordon Bleu. Oh, oh yes. Very, very cool. Very good. Dessert, something you got to have, something that's just your favorite dessert. Yeah, I used to be into like uh, blueberry pies, but quite honestly, I haven't had desserts for the last 10 years. Oh, good. You're getting away from sweets. I good am. for you. I'm eating cheese now for dessert. I'm doing a lot of cheese and potato chips and spinach dip. Jeez, my wife's going to kill me. Um, uh, favorite libation? Favorite libation? Yes. Uh, so do you... Uh, I asked this question to... Uh, Oh my God! I asked it to George. Oh my God! I did Spring Creeks um, with him, and he told me it was um, it was root beer. You could so if you don't drink, you could say you could do like root beer or Mountain Dew. Or yeah, whatever. I don't. I don't drink anymore. Uh, oh, good for you. Yeah. So, do you have like a favorite mineral water, or do you have like a favorite uh, bubbly water or something? Kombucha. That's kind of what I do. I like kombucha. Oh, fantastic. Good for you. Um, so anyways, one place, a bucket place list that you have not been, that you must go to, that that's driving you crazy right now. Uh, definitely uh, somewhere probably in Patagonia. Uh, I've never, you know, I've been in a lot of places, but South America is one of them I have been. So definitely Patagonia region. Okay. And if I caught you fishing tomorrow, what rod would you have in your hand? I would be fishing 11 foot three. Uh, the Orvis H3. Okay. And what weight? Uh, three weight. Oh, foot. three weight. Three. Okay, right. Um, and uh, reel? Uh, I have the Euro reel, so basically with a with a thin line, but it's just a, it's a Euro reel, so it's just designed to, so the thin fly line or leader doesn't uh, snag through the, the gear. So, nope, the Euro reel is what I use. And line? Uh Pretty much, I have a three-weight double taper on that at all points. And if I cast, I, I love, I'm a taper three uh, double taper guy. And if I'm Euro nymphing, it's all mono off that three-weight double taper. Okay, very good. Um, and I think that is pretty much uh, it. Um, any other f- closing comments, George? It was real pleasure uh, having you. I got to know you really well. I uh, highly advise. Oh, did you ever? Um, have you ever got into spay fishing at all? 
that's on my bucket list. That's something I really want to get into. And especially for smallmouth bass and some of our larger waters, that's something I really want to get into. So that's something that's a, a project within the next two to three years I want to dive into. Well, if you come up to Michigan, I'll be happy to give you a spay instruction. How does love that sound? To. We'd love that. And, I'll, and yeah. I'd love to take you Atlantic salmon fishing too. I, yeah. I think you'd really enjoy that. Okay. Any closing uh, comments, George? Um, anything of any insight to give our listeners? Um, uh, any parting words from you, Master George? No, no, Master. But no, just don't get stuck in one routine. Don't, you know, as effective as your own nymphing is, if you really want to enjoy the sport to its maximum, just diversify. Changing up dry flies, nymphs, streamers, two handed, one handed. But just don't do the same thing. Uh, don't live a dogmatic life. Uh, and find out something that works for you. Do it. Uh, just don't do it because someone else tells you. But if you keep it mixed up and do it your own way and just take good bits of piece, piece of information from those around you, you're going to have a, a great, fulfilling time on the water. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, thank you. This has uh, been part five. And uh, after this, we're going to get into uh, the perceptive of the audience and the people that go to fly shops. Um, and we're going to go on to that. And then our next series that we're going to be doing, which I'll announce uh, after this. But thank you so much, George. Really appreciate your time. Uh, hope you have a great semester at Penn State and uh, hope uh, all your shows go well. And uh Travel safely. And on that note, people, uh, behave, do good things, go fishing more, take other people fishing, teach them how to fish, uh, and uh, take care of each other and love one another. And uh, and uh, hopefully the world will be better because of us fly fishers. But that is all. Au revoir. Auf Wiedersehen. Dos Vidania. Dovidania. Adios. And uh, goodbye, folks. Be well. Take care.